Thanks for checking out the Best of Hoffman Show. Appreciate you listening. I am Craig Hoffman. This is my show. No matter how you found it, you can subscribe, rate, review, all that kind of stuff on iTunes. And we'll very much appreciate you doing so. The podcast this week contains... Lots of good stuff. Adam Amin of ESPN had a, just an incredible call of John Wall's game winner in Game 6. You'll hear that call uh, and me talking about it in the first opening segment. You'll also hear it again as we have Adam on the show. Drew Hanlon, who is Bradley Beal's skills coach and a longtime friend, was really, really insightful on how Bradley has developed his game over the years and some of the things that they've done and how he's developed as a skills coach. That interview later on in the podcast as well. Brian McNally on some Redskins things and also a little bit on the Wizards crowd that we were I spent some time talking about. And then to open, uh, which you'll hear literally in 10 seconds, uh, talking about why sports are great and why DC sports fans could be a little more optimistic. This week was weird because, I mean, the game on on Friday night is such an incredible high, and of course Wednesday was such an incredible low um, at Verizon Center with the Capital season ending. And it remind it, it was just I'm I'm going to take you through that from my these moments from my vantage point. Because I, I have no problem admitting uh, everybody's from somewhere, and I'm not from here. I'm not a D.C. native. I haven't been through the wars, uh, which all has seemingly been lost since 1979. Um, I often get frustrated with what I think is a loser mentality of D.C. sports fans, but... I also am empathetic and sympathetic because I understand that it comes from a place of of incredible scarring that there have been an innumerable amount of incredible losses. Um, I'm reading Michael Lee's column on the vertical right now. Michael Lee, formerly of the Washington Post, writes for for Yahoo's The Vertical, and he just goes through. All of the losses that the Wizards have had in the playoffs, and it's it's ridiculous. Some of the ways they lost, I mean, you forget, I mean, I, many of you haven't obviously forgotten, but like, you just kind of, I think, unless you're, you're totally enveloped in your own grief, you forget how long the list is of incredible moments from Gilbert Arenas missing the two free throws to Paul Pierce. And I feel like I should put a trigger warning on this. Paul Pierce and the shot that was a tenth of a second too late. And those are just the two recent ones. And then you go back to, you know, where you think you have this amazing team of the future when Michael Jordan sweeps you in 1994. And uh, just, I mean, Michael in this column lays all of it out. And so I, I while it drives me insane that fans here just have this ever sense of impending doom the doom has come every single time so i get it but what makes sports great is the idea that that can change and so wednesday night um i went over to my buddy sam's house uh for the first part of the night and then and then was watching at home for the second part uh the second half basically the second half of the wizards game on and and 
Obviously, Wednesday night was a disaster. Wednesday night was the quintessential D.C. sports night, historically speaking. It was an incredible amount of hype. You had not only Caps, Penn's Game 7, but Wizards, Celtics, Game 5, and you had Nats O's. Just a little extra cherry on top, which wound up being the only thing that was edible. Uh, but the Caps game, so frustrating. It is your quintessential Caps game of the last 10 years, playoff-wise. Outshot, arguably outplay, uh, at least for long stretches outplay, which further stretches, though, nothing proves fruitful. And you go home a loser. And the Wizards just, man, that game had me spooked. I thought they had more fight than what they showed in that game, and they were terrible. They had nothing. They couldn't hit a shot. I actually thought they played decently well early um, and just couldn't hit any shots, and then and then it all went downhill from there. And when you're going downhill from can't hit any shots, things aren't getting better. So there's a point after I got home in the second half, and I'm essentially waiting for the clock to run out on both both games, because I'm, I keep hitting the, the, the last button on, on my remote, going back and forth. Previous channel, let's go to the Caps. Previous channel, let's go to the Wiz. Previous channel, let's go to the Caps. Previous channel, let's go for the Wiz. And all I was looking for was hope. And there was none to be found. None whatsoever. And it was kind of in that moment where I understood Danny Ruye. And all of the rest of you miserable sons of guns who just expect the worst at all times. I go, this is what your entire life has been like? Man, this sucks. And because it's one thing to like know the history, but to like to to kind of have that experience. It's brutal, man, because I root for these teams now. And my job, my life is better when they win. And so for for a moment I gave up on my my frustrations with the DC sports fan quote unquote loser mentality. And then I was reminded why I get frustrated. And why I get frustrated is we go, we go into a sporting event. We go into a sporting event knowing that losing is a possibility, knowing that heartbreak is a possibility. But we do it for moments like this. Porter looking, still looking. Hands it off for Wall. Wall with five. Pull up, right wing three. Good! John Wall pulled, blooded, 92-91, to go. The biggest shot of John Wall's career. That's Adam Amin on ESPN Radio. He's going to join us later. That moment is the biggest moment in Wizards history since 1979 on the positive side. If you had to wait for it, which we all have, like, yeah, it sucks. But the Cubs won the World Series, and the Red Sox eventually won the World Series in 04. Cleveland won something. Your time will come, D.C. It may not be soon. I'd be stunned if it's the Wizards' year. We obviously know it's not the Caps year, even though it looked like it was going to be. 
But we, we stick with it because of moments like that. And so to just beat yourself up because of some sense of impending doom, like let the good moments eventually be joy. Don't, don't make it a surprise. Hold on to your hope. It's worth it in the end because you get to experience moments like that. Hoffman Show on the fan. Joining me now as he does, at this point, it's pretty much every week. Brian McNally, our Redskins beat reporter, and so much more here on the fan. Good morning, B-Mac. How are you, my friend? What's up, Craig? What's going on, bud? Oh, just getting in shouting matches with DC sports fans about how they should show up on time. Uh, I know that this is something you uh, were tweeting about as well after I tweeted about it the other night. Um, you've been covering sports here and, and living here a lot longer than I have. Were you surprised at the turnout uh, for Game 6? You were in the building as well, that, uh, of how late it was. Because um, it was awesome, awesome uh, late, but early it was it was pathetic, frankly. Yeah, it was terrible. Now, what I don't know is, is were there some... Uh, you see this with Caps games sometimes. <clears throat> Everybody tries to get in the building at the same time. There's so much stuff to do around Verizon Center. If you're not interested in um, warm-ups or anything like that, a lot of times you'll get uh, kind of a, a run on the exits, I guess, or the entrances. Um, people coming out of all the, all the businesses and bars, uh, especially on a Friday night. So I, can, I would get if that was the case, and, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe that is the case. I know that, <clears throat> that's, excuse me, my voice is killing me. But uh, it, it, the Caps have had that happen before. You see late arriving crowds, but not for a big game. That was the difference. If, if this is uh, a January game against the Timberwolves, okay, whatever. You know, if it's a Saturday night game against the Knicks and people are filtering in late, I get it. But, but this was game six. You'd think people would be, not just people would be in their seats. I mean, there was nobody in the building, hardly, uh, the first say half of the first quarter and it, it took well into the first half before it filled in. So just kind of curious on my part. I, I've never really seen, uh, seen that before, not with a, not with a good team and not, not in that situation. Yeah. I, I don't get it. All right. Uh, to your day job. Now, uh, the Washington Redskins had a rookie mini camp yesterday. Uh, let me start with this very simply. What does that mean? What happens yesterday? Who is there? What are they able to accomplish? What of what they did actually matters? Yeah, it's it's really no different, Craig, than uh, than OTAs for people that that don't know. I mean, it's it's a way to in, to get the um, the draft picks and the unsigned college free agents um, a chance to to get their feet wet. They have meetings for a couple of days with coaches, uh, some intense football time where they get introduced to NFL football and concepts and what they'll be asked to do during OTAs and mini camp and, and especially in training camp. Um, and then you fill out the roster with a whole bunch of tryout guys. Um, you know, probably I'd, I'd guess, you know, 30 or so guys who are just in on tryout kind they haven't signed anything. They're not guaranteed anything. Um, very, very rarely does a, a tryout guy make a, make a camp roster, let alone a, a 53-man roster, but it, it happens occasionally. I, I want to say a couple of years ago, I, I may be wrong on this, I want to say Houston Bates was a tryout guy, um, linebacker, and then, and then made, it, um, you know, made it onto the, uh, the off-season roster and then you know, had a good showing in camp. So occasionally you'll, you'll get one of these tryout guys to, to do well um, and, and show you something. 
And that's that's why they're there. It's, it's to get a, a couple of days and look at them and, and see if you think they can hang in, in camp. Um, and then there are also the practice squad guys from last year, uh, the guys that were on the on the squad from for a year. People will recognize the name Kendall Thompson. Made some plays last preseason and was a was a wide receiver on the practice squad all year. So you get a couple of those guys as well, and they all get together and essentially have a little a boot camp for a for a weekend and meetings and practices and uh, and yesterday was uh, was one of the three days for the Redskins and it was about a you know about an hour long and and a, a good chance for the coaching staff to kind of get their first look on the field at, uh, at some of their draft picks and, and guys who should make an impact here in training camp. First chance for you as well. Brian McNally with us on the Hoffman Show here on The Fan. Uh, I guess people are going to be most interested in the top two picks. Let's talk about those two guys. Um, what did we see from the two Bama boys yesterday out there, Jonathan Allen and Ryan Anderson? Yeah, Allen was getting some, uh, some intensive one-on-one instruction. I mean, they were just doing drills essentially uh for the most part um with jim tom sula the new defensive line coach obviously people will be familiar with during his uh his rough tenure as head coach of the 49ers but he's a well-respected defensive line coach um kind of along the lines of, of bill callahan on the offensive line um as a guy who can develop young players and that's now the redskins are to the point where they need someone on the line who can develop young players you got jonathan allen you got anthony lanier you got matt ionitis um, got a little bit of youth here on the on the line, which they have not had in a long time. So, um, so he was working pretty intensively with the whole group, but with with Jonathan Allen especially uh, on on different drills, and um, and that was kind of fun to watch and and see that interaction up close, you know, five ten feet away. Um, uh, Ryan Anderson was was interesting. I saw Jay Gruden needling him a little bit that. Looks like you need a. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. It looks like you need a break, or you look a little winded there. And and Ryan, I think um, you know, since the combine has put on about ten pounds, he was two fifty three. I think Jay said he was a, a little over two sixty um, yesterday. Not. I, I wouldn't be overly concerned about that. Certainly, these guys grind for uh, for a long, long time to get to the combine. Um, and the Alabama players had a long, long college season, so. He needed a break. You could tell he needed a mental break after, um, you know, but after pro days were done and all that stuff. So, you know, just something to watch in, in training camp. Uh, make sure he comes back here the next, puts in the work the next couple of weeks to get back down to the to the weight they want him. Um, but you know, yesterday for sure was a little bit winded getting back into into football condition. It's it's been a little while, so. Um, that's uh, that's what we noticed about the uh, the two Bama boys. We'll we'll get a lot more information on them once the uh, once the veterans are out there on the field with them. Yeah, it's one thing to beat up on the guys that are playing at the level that you've already beat up on guys, uh, and and not the best amongst them. Obviously, as you said, mostly um, mostly tryout guys that aren't going to even make a camp roster. Was there any one of those tryout guys though that that you sweat? Hey, maybe maybe he finds himself uh, with an invite to camp. Uh, not really. I mean, it, it's tough to to pick when when everything's going on and you're not really you know focused on one individual player. I didn't I didn't really see anybody who stood out. Doesn't mean there weren't some. Um, you know, maybe the most interesting story was Mario Norman is the older brother of Josh Norman. Uh, Redskins star cornerback, another Coastal Carolina guy. Yep. He was in on a tryout thing. Apparently, uh, Josh had been kind of lobbying that for about 18 months, really, since he signed. 
and Mario Norman is, you know, has played lower level football. I mean, he's obviously played in college, but he was was in the CFL for a year. He was in the Arena League for a couple of years. So, um, you know, the, exactly the type of guy you would give a tryout to. It was just interesting. He was the only uh, he was the only one of the tryout kids with his name on his jersey because he just uh, snagged Josh's practice jersey and, and wore that and wore number twenty four. So. Um, again, interesting guy to talk to, you know, good to get his perspective on, on Josh and, and how they, they kind of came up together. Um, you know, unlikely to, to get even a camp invite, but we'll, we'll see on that. And, uh, there weren't, there weren't a ton of tryout guys that immediately jumped out at, at me, but that was certainly one story that was, uh, that was interesting to follow up on. Um, I will, for the audience in the next segment, tell more about the relationship between Mario and Josh Norman and why Mario is responsible for Josh being in the NFL because uh, I think it's a fun story on a, on a family type of day like Mother's Day. Uh, real quick, though, Brian, for you, the question you are most likely to get asked over the next, uh, let's see, it's May 15th, two months and one day. Has there been any rumblings on any kind of progress on Kirk Cousins? And you can make this answer as short as you want. Uh, yeah, no, no rumblings. Um, doesn't mean things aren't going on behind the scenes. There will be talks at some point, uh, and intensive talks, but, um, I would, I would expect much, much closer to the, the actual deadline, Craig, than, than before. Doesn't mean they can't go underground and, and kind of, you know, throw a curveball to everybody and, and get something done in, in May or June. Uh, it certainly would behoove both sides, I think, to make a push, but, um, you know, deadlines, spur action and and i would expect that kind of last week and that first and second week in july to be when things really pick up between both sides and um you know they they know which way you know what how far each side is is willing to go i guess sounds like we're gonna have a lot of nothing to talk about until like july 10th we're gonna be living with this one for a bit i think Greg. oh boy can't wait. All right. Brian McNally, our Redskins right. beat reporter. Uh, appreciate some time. Uh, go now spend spend the rest of the day with mom, and I will talk to you this week, my friend. Sounds good, man. Porter looking, still looking. Hands it off for Wall. Wall with five. Pull up. Right wing three. Good! John Wall pulled, blooded, 92-91. Call is going to give me goosebumps for a long time. The man that made it is Adam Amin on ESPN Radio. He is with me now. And Adam, I know that the first time uh, you heard this call was when you were on with Freddie Coleman on ESPN Radio uh, Friday night after the game because I was with you literally three minutes before you heard said call and then was in my car listening to you with Freddie. And I could tell, but Freddie asked you, you know, had you heard it yet? What would you think? And I, I, it felt like you were smiling as you answered the question. Um, what? Be honest with me. You're, you're proud of that one, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was one that's, that I'm going to remember for a long time. Like you just you just go into these games and you go into these moments and you hope not to screw it up and you hope your instincts are sharp enough and you've done enough. You, you know, you've you've called as many games as you need to to be able to make the right call in the right moment. That's all you hope for. And you know, sometimes your 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 skill set that you've you've worked on is is up to par to at least give the moments of justice. And I think we, at the very least, 
we did the moment justice. You know, it was it was an insane atmosphere when that shot went down. You know, we were in the building for it, Craig. Like we both kind of felt that energy. Yeah, in, in a place a little, it, and it was a little bit. Correct me if I'm wrong. I felt like it was a little dead to start the night on Friday night. Uh, well, yeah, I no, I spent I spent about 45 nope. minutes earlier in the show talking about uh, how ridiculous it is that that building was half empty, uh, basically until halftime. Um, but by the end, man, it was it was incredible. Yeah, it was, it was hopping, and I and I wonder if the Caps losing on Wednesday night kind of soured some folks in the D.C. area. I, uh, I know it was a little bit of a, a muted crowd early on, but as the game went on, you know, like you said, the crowd kept filing in. You know, it wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing basketball game either for three, I would say three quarters, three and a half quarters even. But when it got tight, when it got down to the wire, the crowd was into it, and it was just an awesome, awesome atmosphere. And you, Like I say, you just hope to make the right call at the right time, and uh, I think we did an okay job. Yeah, part of the right call to me, part of why I, I really honestly, and I wouldn't say, I'm not just saying this because you're my friend, I'm saying this because I, I believe it. Like, part of what I think made that call great is the perspective you provide of, like, John Wall just hit the biggest shot of his life. And he hit the biggest shot that the Wizards have seen since 1979. And you were able to capture that um, by saying it and, and obviously with the energy you had um, in the call. Like, at what point are you thinking about trying to kind of provide that perspective of something much larger than the singular game and the, the likely extension of the series. Part of that is preparation in terms of uh, how, how you read and how you absorb the information that's out there. You know, and I've got a lot of good friends, yourself included in the DC area that, that I'm lucky enough to talk to about this team, about the games that we cover. And a lot of them talked about John Wall's legacy. Now, whether or not it was a make or break game, for John Wall, I, I don't think that was necessarily the case. I don't think losing a game six uh, in a in a back and forth series in the second round is enough to tarnish your legacy or something. But I do think winning a game like that or having a great performance or or making a clutch basket, I do think that goes a long way into endearing yourself and entrenching yourself in the hearts of fans in any type of, in any city that you're in in any sport that that you might be playing. So I we we did talk about that with a lot of people. And I do think there was, in this town, referring to D.C., I feel like there was a little bit more vested interest in how John Wall plays and how he was going to perform in, a, in, a, in an elimination game. He hasn't performed very well in elimination games. And in his three elimination games in his career, he had shot 27% from three-point range. And it was just ironic, maybe a little fitting, that he came up with the biggest basket of his career in the biggest moment of his career it, it happened to be a, a pull-up, stare-down, three-point shot in the final seconds to go ahead. Adam Amin of ESPN Radio with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. He'll be on the call tomorrow night for Game 7, called Game 6, also called a couple games earlier in the Wizards and Celtics series. You had a chance to sit down with John before Game 1, and I've actually never had the chance to sit down with him one-on-one, -on -one, but in press conference settings or in scrum settings and, and talking to enough people who have had some, some more personal chats with him, he seems to be, I don't want to say wholly unique among superstars, but but certainly um, rare among superstars where there's not this wall up, there's not, there's not any kind of barrier between you and him. He is very human and humane in that way. Did that strike you when you talked to him? Uh, and how would you compare that to conversations you've had with other stars around the league? Yeah, and to think about it, we've, we've talked to him twice now in this series. It was before game one, and yeah, it was before game six. We talked to him at Chiron on Friday, too. And it was... I, I think you're right, Craig. I think there is a, a demeanor that is that is different. I won't call it unique, 
I don't think it's a one of a kind feature to John Wall, but I do think that it is a little more rare than you might expect. I think there's a, a reserved, measured, reason nature to John Wall, who's a very analytical guy. Like when you talk to him about, we, we asked him about Isaiah Thomas and the adjustments that they've made on him. He, he, he was very analytical about it. He was saying, we're not double teaming, triple teaming Isaiah Thomas necessarily, even though that's what people say we're doing or think we're doing. But he talked about corralling him a little bit and sending a couple of guys in his direction without actually double teaming and triple teaming him. And he talked about wearing him out a little bit at the defensive end of the floor. And that's not always an answer that you get, not because athletes aren't comfortable giving it, but that's not the first thing that they think about. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily thinking about the second or third step in terms of stopping a guy. They're, they're only thinking about the first step. And John took it a step further. He was telling us, you know, the, uh, the second and third method for what they were doing to try to slow guys down. He had a lot of insightful things to say during our interviews with him. And, and I, I do think while it's certainly not a unique quality, it is a, a rare quality to be able to see a guy just analyze and think critically on the day of a game, nonetheless, like to, to kind of take a step back and, and, and kind of look at things from a, a broader scope and, and from a larger perspective what's going to happen in that game. I think that's very interesting to, to hear from athletes. And I think John's included in that category. Yeah, no doubt about it. And and the fact that he gives you the time, because a lot he could just cruise through the interviews, and that's what a lot of these guys do. But he, he actually, what I've always appreciated about him and my interactions with him, which have been mostly press conference settings, um, is that he actually will listen to the question and answer it as opposed to just spitting out some basketball word vomit. Uh, that that might suffice kind of as an answer. Um, and for whatever it's worth, Steph Curry is the other guy that comes to mind uh, in the league that, is, that has been that way in, in interactions I've had. Um, Adam Amin of ESPN Radio, the guest here on The Fan. So uh, when we look at the X's and O's of this series, and, and there have been a lot of adjustments made, starting lineups, matchups, um, if you anticipate what some kind of change in Game 7, do you think that there is another adjustment for one of these teams to be made, or do you think this is going to simply come down to which team can make shots where Boston has been so much better at home and the Wizards have really struggled all series to hit from, from deep specifically? Yeah, if you ask different coaches over the course of a series about adjustments, uh, I think some of them will tell you it's a bit of a buzzword. Some of them will tell you that it's a legitimate thing. And it just depends on the series. I mean, uh, I think talking with Greg Popovich during the Houston-San Antonio series, you know, he, he, necess- he wasn't necessarily about adjustments in the series. A lot of it for him was straight-up execution. Uh, they know how to play Houston. They know how to, how to uh, set against Houston. They know how to defend Houston. And it's just a matter of executing the game plan, being quick enough and energetic enough to get to the spots you need to get to. And then it comes down to shot making. And it's sometimes as simple as that. I think this series has had more adjustments. I do think that. I think a concerted effort has been made to make sure John Wall stays out of the paint as much as possible with easy shots. And I do think there's been a concerted effort from Washington to not allow Isaiah Thomas to run through a spread defense as much as he did in the first couple of games of this series. Because there were a lot of open driving lanes for Isaiah Thomas. Part of that is the fact that Boston spaces the floor so well because of guys like Al Horford. And and when they're shooting well from three-point range, Avery Bradley in game five in particular, that opens up driving lanes for Isaiah Thomas. Notice he just hasn't been taking as many shots in the last four games ever since the, the incredible performances he had in games one and game two. So... I feel like there have been legitimate adjustments made in this series. I do think it's going to come down to just shot making and execution. You know, that's not a cliche. It legitimately is 
executing the game plan you think you need to execute, and I think both teams actually did a pretty good job of that in game six. Hey, we're not going to let Isaiah Thomas beat us. We're going to create a wall against him, and we're going to make things difficult for John Wall going inside. Uh, you know, from that point on, it just ends up coming down to shot making. Who's going to make shots when they have open ones? And how many open threes do we see both teams miss from the corner over the course of game six? If those shots go down, we're talking about a much different basketball game in game six. So I think that's pretty much what it's going to come down to in game seven. I tend to agree with you, my friend. Uh, have a great call. Safe travels. Enjoy the rare off day. And I will see you down the road uh, for a Nationals game whenever, whenever those pop up on your schedule. Sounds like a plan, buddy. All right, that's Adam Amin of ESPN Radio. You can follow him on Twitter, at Adam Amin. Uh, and on Instagram, I think he's at Adam underscore Amin on Instagram there. Uh, and then, of course, listen to his calls, the ESPN Radio app uh, or your TuneIn app, where you can also listen to this fine radio station. I'm really excited to talk to our next guest. He's a guy whose work I've followed for a long time. Probably have been actually following his work longer than I realized because I, I'm such a avid watcher of the NBA. But to really get some behind-the-scenes looks at how these guys get to the incredible levels they play at, uh, is there, there are a lot of, you know, obviously great coaches in the league, but also great coaches outside the league, individual skill coaches who work with these guys in the offseason. And any of these coaches will tell you it is on the player to put in the work, but it's unquestionable that the guys guiding them have a major impact. There's no one better in that realm than Drew Hanlon, who joins me now. Drew has been working uh, with Andrew Wiggins and Zach Levine and a bunch of other guys. He's working with Jason Tatum and Frank Mason, who will be drafted uh, coming up in June. But for, for the purposes of our conversation, the most important player he works with is Bradley Beal. Drew, uh, good morning. How are you, man? Good to talk. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So how did you get linked up with Bradley? Let's start there, and then let's dive into the work you guys have done. Yeah, so Brad and I are both from St. Louis, so I uh, I started working with Brad as a freshman in high school. I was actually a um, you know a senior in high school at the time, um, getting ready to enter my senior year. He was getting ready to enter his uh, freshman year when we started working together. So we've been together for ten years now, which is crazy when you know because both of us are pretty young, and um, to go back and, and to think that we've already put in ten years of work is wild. But um, it's something that started out as basically. Um, I was one of the better players in St. Louis at the time. He was an up-and-coming player. We both played on the same uh, summer travel program, and uh, we got linked up. Uh, you know, I, I was working out just a bunch of local, like, younger players, and uh, he jumped in those workouts. And then we started turning the group workouts into individual workouts, and uh, we've been working together ever since. And, yeah, that's crazy. So was he, I guess, kind of your first, your first guy? At what point did you start doing this with pros? Yeah, so I started, he was my first, like, you know, guy that kind of put me on the map. Um, as he, you know, changed his game, he went from, like, nine points a game his freshman year to 24 points a game as a sophomore um, in high school. And so he found a lot of success. So I started working out a lot of the better players around St. Louis. And then uh, David Lee, who went to the same high school as Brad, um, took notice and started working with me when I was a freshman or maybe sophomore in college. So I was actually playing college basketball at Belmont University and, uh, and training. You know, David was my first full-time NBA guy. Um, and then I started working. Actually, you know, I did some work with, like, a bunch of the Reebok guys. So when John Wall was Reebok, Isaiah Thomas when he was Reebok, um, you know, those guys were guys that, you know, jumped into workouts and then 
Um, started working out a lot of the other top college players. Um, you know, me being at Belmont, I was right next to Vanderbilt. So John Jenkins and Festus Azili and uh, those guys were right across the street for me. So I started working out those guys. And then one thing led to the next. And now I'm fortunate to work with a bunch of guys on a, on a regular basis. Drew Hanlon uh, of Pure Sweat, one of the best individual skill coaches uh, around the NBA with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. So there's a couple moves uh, of Bradley's that I would love to kind of dive into and some of the work you guys have done to develop. And maybe you, better than anyone, can take us inside what he's seeing in these moments. Um, Because, I mean, his floor game has taken an incredible leap this year, and he's been really effective these playoffs, despite the fact that he hasn't really shot it well from three. Um, the first one I want to talk about is is the step back that he has where he jabs that right foot so hard. I would even describe it as violently um, into the floor and then is able to create space. At what point did that emerge in his game and how have you guys refined that over the years and kind of w- what is he looking at when that move is going to come come to him? Yeah, so it's funny. A step back is actually his go-to move and it was something that um, you know we trained hard when he was in high school and that was his his. I mean, signature move in high school where he would just really load up that right leg, sell the drive, get the defender to drop, and then, uh, you know, load and explode off that plant foot and get separation to knock down shots. But it was something that, you know, two summers ago, our big focus was eliminating long twos from his game, become more efficient, shoot more threes, less mid-range twos. And so, you know, we dropped him down from 28% of his shots being, you know, long twos to now he's at about 17% of his shots being mid-range shots. And so the next step for him was, okay, now we've got to develop into a guy that uh, doesn't just rely so much on shooting, but we've got to be able to finish more at the rim. And if we're finishing more at the rim, then we've got to also be able to, you know, sell that we're going downhill and get trying to get to the basket. And then, you know, if they cut us off, we're able to kind of bump off and create separation in a variety of different ways. And so, uh, you know, we just talked about just getting back to a step back. We were like, you're so good in high school uh, using it. He used it a lot at Florida, um, but it was something he kind of went away from as he became more of a more of a shooter and less of a kind of a score early on in his NBA career. And uh, so we knew to get him back to being a scorer, he had to first, you know, get back to feeling good about using a step back and then um, also continue to improve his finishing around the rim, which is something that, uh, you know, was obviously on full display last game. Yeah, absolutely. The other question I have about that move um, and and kind of the violence of it is this is a guy that has battled a lot of injuries over his career. And as someone who is, is Drew, you know, um, and and some of our audience know, I'm I'm a personal trainer as well um, on the side. And so like movement patterns and things like that are always interesting to me. And for a move that is so violent, the balance of that is so important. Because if he jabs that foot wrong with all that weight on it, I mean, that's that's a knee injury waiting to happen. So how much have you worked um, on the strength and conditioning side and then the kind of the movement pattern refinement uh, to make sure that that's, that's a, literally a healthy move for him? Yeah, no question. I think one of the big things that Brad did this summer um, was work with the Wizards hired a full-time physical therapist, and Jesse was out here in L.A. with with us the whole time, and uh, that's one of the big reasons why he's had a healthy season. The other thing is when we were when I was younger, you know, I mentioned when I started working with Brad, I was 17 years old, and really I was just a player that worked my butt off and constantly was you know stealing the stuff that I liked that I saw and that helped me improve my game and so we were working like three four five hours a day and it was constant jabbing loading of every joint that you can think about 
And so while a lot of people give me credit for, you know, some of Brad's success, I always take, you know, part of the blame for his overuse injuries just because when we were younger, I mean, there was no such thing as managing load. And so I think one of the big things now, um, you know, the last two summers really has been us just managing his load and making sure that we're monitoring how much, you know, stress we're putting on different parts of the body. And then also the Wizards hiring Jesse full-time to be, you know, the physical therapist and really to uh, build up all those micro muscles was huge for him to have a healthy season this year. Drew Hanlon, Bradley Beal's individual skill coach, longtime friend with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Um, when The other move I wanted to ask you about that Bradley, it's someone, so a move that a lot of guys use in the league now, but it's something that Bradley is exceptional at, is the ability coming off pick and roll to get a defender on his hip and then keep him back there. What goes into that move and what is he looking at uh, as he's coming off a screen and roll? Because his pick and roll game has taken leaps and bounds this year. No question. I mean, obviously the pick and roll gives you an advantage in so many different ways because if you run your primary defender into the screen, then you're playing, you know, basically four on three. And uh, we always talk about if you can, if you can just keep your guy on your hip um, and keep him behind you, you not only have an advantage, but now you're playing one on one with a big guy. And, uh, you know, we really like our chances of Brad's attacking a big. So that's why it's so important for him to, uh, you know, basically veer off of the screen instead of just come off the screen. I think in past years, he's basically came off the screen, which means he's still running, you know, tight off the screener. But then he's kind of veering out to the, you know, north. instead of going north-south, he's going east-west a little bit. Whereas this year, he's getting more downhill um, and attacking the big, which is putting the big in a tough situation where, uh, you know, he's picking up more fouls, getting to the free throw line more, and then also being able to create for himself and others a lot better just because of the, the different driving angles off of the screen. The one thing that hasn't been there for him this postseason is the three-point shot, which is ridiculous in a way because he is such a good shooter. Um, what, what do you tell him? Is, is he struggling from three? Are you trying to find something technical there, or is it just you know kind of encouraging him? What, what's kind of your role during this season and specifically during a stretch like this where such an, uh, a typically exceptional part of his game isn't going as well for him? Yeah, so early on in the postseason, I think he was just putting a lot of stress on himself. He was really locked in. I mean, cut off his phone completely to the outside world and, and was really locked in. And um, So I think part of that was just a little bit added stress and, and trying to make sure. I mean, he cares so much, uh, you know, about helping his team win. And, and now that they're there and they're doing well, you know, that's what that's what he wanted to do is just contribute to winning. And so I think part of it was just stress early on. And, and now he has – just one thing that he's doing a little bit, he's sweeping his feet out in front and leaning back a little bit on his shot, which is causing the ball to be a little bit flat. And uh, it's something we talked about last game. It, it happened almost almost every time. Fortunately, it didn't happen on that on the big three that he hit at the end. But, um, you know, we, we've been going over clips, uh, you know, after each game. And uh, he knows what he's got to do. He's just got to lock in on it and do it. But uh, the good news is law love averages always plays out. And, uh, you know, he's a – He's a 40, 41% shooter, and, uh, you know, he's shooting 25% in the playoffs, which means uh, if I'm a Wizards fan, I'm, I'm excited because, you know, the breakout's coming soon. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing I'll ask you, Drew, especially since you've known Bradley for such a long time, he's got this killer mentality that, that is both aggressive and that he will go after the big moments and isn't afraid of them, but also, uh, you know, just resilient and that he will not die. He and John both have that and you've worked with them both. Um, can, can you kind of tell us, uh, some stories or a story real quick about, um, some of the first times you, you realized that Bradley had that kind of killer instinct in him. 
I'll tell you one. So I mentioned that, you know, he was a freshman when we started working out, and, and the summer after his freshman year was when we started doing individual workouts and really going full speed. And his second game of his sophomore year in high school, he scored 52 points. This is a guy that averaged nine points a game as a freshman, and that was the, that was the first game where I was like, oh, my God, he, he's got it. You know, he's really special. And so that was one of the things. Um, but the other thing that really – was the thing that most impressed me was when when I was younger, I mean, I really put guys through brutal workouts. And the first time I ever worked out Brad, he almost passed out about 25 minutes into the workout. I mean, hit the floor, hated me, hated it. <laughs> didn't want to see me again, but, um, you know, so he didn't even work out with me for about two, three months after that. I mean, that much, that, he hated me that much because my workouts were that tough. But then after... Um, you know, some time away and everything like that. He came back and was like, "Hey, bro, I know it's tough, but you know, I really want to. I really want to be a Division One basketball player. That was that was his goal at the time." And um, you know, he got back in the gym, and, and from that moment on, once he came back after that first workout, um, I mean, it was just the, the workouts I put him through. If I put any of my guys through today, they would just they would hate me. Um, that's how hard we were working back then. So. I think it just stems from that, and then also just um, you know him being so competitive growing up you know, with all of his brothers and his mom and dad who were both competitive. I think that that's where really it started way long before I was even involved. It was just, you know, his family being so close, his brothers knocking him on his, on his butt, um, you know, whether it was them playing backyard football or them playing basketball in a gym. Um, but I think that those are the two stories that stand out with me is one, just the dropping the 52 points and showing himself that there really was no limit to how good he could be. And then two, him just getting back in the gym after hating how hard the work ethic was and realizing that, you know, that work was going to be required if he wanted to be special one day. Special combination of nature and nurture. Drew, this was really uh, fun and insightful. We'll definitely talk again down the road. Hope we can cross paths too. If you're in DC next time you are, please holler at me. Uh, it'd be good, good to meet in person, man. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me on, and hopefully uh, the Wizards take that next game. Absolutely. That's Drew Hanlon. Uh, Pure Sweat is the company. Uh, now he's been doing it, as he said, since he was 17 years old, working guys out, and, and he has worked with some of the best in the, in the business, and obviously Bradley Beal, longer than any of those others. That'll do for this week's show, but before we go, I should add, and I should have done this on the air, but I'll certainly tweet out the link, that Drew's company, Pure Sweat, is actually putting on a performance huddle for basketball coaches next weekend in Richmond. It's actually where I'm going to be next Sunday. We're going to record the Q&A portion of that for the Train with the Best podcast, which will have a new episode out this week. But Richmond, Virginia, May 21st. You can go to puresweat.com slash Huddle 2017 for more information. And actually, you can even go a link shorter than that. Pure Sweat and then put uh, a period before the AT. So P-U-R-E-S-W-E dot A-T slash Huddle 2017. And you can check out uh, all of that stuff. Uh, Chris Gorez, my partner on the Train with the Best podcast, who's a part of the Pure Sweat team, their strength and conditioning guy, is going to be there along with Alan Stein. So it should be a really, really informative event. If you are a basketball person, I would definitely recommend checking that out if you have any interest in coaching. So that is that. Thanks to Drew, Adam, and Brian for coming on the show. Uh, I will see you in two weeks and, of course, be tweeting plenty over the next couple of days, including Game 7 on Monday night. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate on the Apple Podcasts app, and I will see you next time on the Best of Pod.